Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. We're delighted to have you with us again. My name is Kevin Zobrist. I'm an extension forester and professor with Washington State University Extension, serving the North Puget Sound area counties. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Schultz, extension forester for Southwest Washington. And today's episode is all about big leaf maple. And there is a lot of stuff, exciting stuff to cover with big leaf maple. And so we're going to talk about big leaf maple as a, as a species, some silvicultural aspects, and maybe if we have time, we'll even talk about that sweet, sweet subject of big leaf maple syrup. We have a very special guest with us. Al Craney is here. And Al is a retired Skagit Conservation District Forester, and we're very privileged to have him here with us for this episode. Patrick, how are you doing? Kevin, <laughs> good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk about maple. Uh, I am really excited topics, as one well. One of my favorite trees. Yeah, uh, and, and you've gotten really big into maple syrup down there at the station too. Yeah, whether I like it or not. I kind of have become the maple syrup guy in, in certain circles and uh, I like it. <laughs> I don't and mind you're very it. good fun. at it. So uh, it's, it's fun that. to have kind of two maple experts here with us today. Al, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and how you got into forestry and what you're doing now. Well, Kevin, I appreciate it. I really uh, enjoy uh, being with you guys here today and, uh, yeah, it's it's been quite a career for me. I've been really fortunate to be in forestry. I I originally started out in uh, majoring in botany, and uh, I eventually uh, uh, got over into forestry and got more and more involved there. And uh, so it was. It's been a great career. I've had the opportunity to uh, work for the federal government. I've worked for the state government. I've worked for the conservation district uh, and uh, the and the Washington Association of Conservation Districts. And I worked in uh, the private sector too as a area forester up here for a large uh, landowner. And you're you're happily retired now, but I, I you're kind of like a lot of foresters I know and that retirement just means you're doing a different kind of work. Um, so, so what are you up to more these days? Well, I'm I still uh, involved with the conservation district. I'm associate supervisor, and uh, uh, we've been real fortunate to be able to uh, hire a forester to replace me here at the Skagit Conservation District. And uh, his name is Nick. And so, if any folks are in Skagit County, uh, give Nick a buzz if you if you need some help. And uh, so I I still stay engaged with the district. I'm still engaged with. Uh, our uh, plant material center, uh, really, uh, uh, you know, that's been a real pet of mine. I uh, originally helped build that facility way back in the day when I was the area forester at Scott Paper Company. And eventually uh, 
through a number of transitions, uh, I became the, uh, the first manager there for the WACD, um, that's the Washington Association of Conservation Districts, when they took over in 1993. And after being there for a few years, uh, the district forester's job came up here at the district, and it was, it was split between uh, Skagit Island and San Juan counties. And it was just, I always dreamed of working out in the San Juans. So I just leaped at that opportunity. It was just, uh, I just didn't want to pass that up. And, and while doing that, uh, the Natural Resources Conservation Service said, well, we need some forestry help out there. And they hired me uh, on their uh, soil science team to help them. Uh, for three years, we redid the San Juan soil survey. And so, you know, just there's just been tremendous opportunities come up. And I just really encourage students that are interested in forestry. There's so many diverse opportunities that it's it's wonderful. I mean, I've just been a really interesting career. Got to do a lot of a lot of different things. Yeah, I, I agree. And especially now as we just generally as a culture look more towards uh, you know, multi-use forms of forest management, I think the opportunities are getting more and more broad. So I would totally reiterate that advice to any students listening that just take, you know, every, what I did is every summer I took a different internship, just doing something totally different. And I got a lot of experience that way. Um, and that's a, a really, I, I'm glad that I did that, I guess, to keep it short, but back to, to more to your, you know, career, you left a really big imprint on Skagit County, you have, um, you know, whether you'll admit it or not, you, you have a legacy in that county uh, as a, a conservation district forester and having done a lot of really great work. Um, and a lot of people know the name Al Craney in that area. And one of the reasons for that is uh, some of your work with Big Leaf Maple, um, which is what we wanted to talk about today. And, you know, to kind of frame it, I thought we could talk a little bit about the history of how big leaf maple has been perceived in this region and why it's unique to be talking about the value of it. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how, how big leaf maple has been seen in forestry in this area for a long, you know, the last hundred or so years? <laughs> yeah, Patrick, I'd love to, because, you know, um, big leaf maple in traditional forestry has been perceived as a weed. And the reason is, is it competes with, uh, Douglas fir and Douglas fir plantations, and Douglas fir being a more high-valued wood product as far as lumber, um, it's it's not for for some landowners it's it's not an ideal uh, species to manage, and there it gets back to really what is the landowner's objective, and getting in, into that, and you know obviously if you're a large industrial uh, operation and You've spent significant funds, maybe millions of dollars, developing a high-tech sawmill for Douglas fir. You're not too interested in in something competing uh, with your Douglas fir, and so it through the 1960s and 70s, it became kind of known as a weed. And the management of big leaf maple was just kill it. And you know that's really unfortunate because when I was first uh, in college and I was in botany. My uh, one of my botany instructors, uh, his name Rufus Kaiser, is very well known down in the Centralia area. He had been a professor at the University of Washington, and and then started a forestry program at at Centralia College. But I was studying botany under him, and I always remember that he said that you know um, 
a weed, his definition of a weed was a plant out of place. And that is so true. Uh, it's just, what is your management objective and does it fit those objectives? And is it, is it inter interfering with, with uh, what you're trying to do? Then it's termed a weed. And so in doing that, we kind of overlooked a lot of the environmental values of big leaf maple. And it's kind of over the last, I would say 50 years, you know, the emphasis has been on trying to kill it. And there's a lot of silvicultural techniques, uh, things that you can do with big leaf maple other than just kill it. But certainly in riparian areas, it's, it's hugely important. Yeah, maple definitely has gotten a bad rap, which is unfortunate because of all the environmental benefits it has. And also, it's just a beautiful tree. It's one of my favorites. And one of the things I love about big leaf maple is it's beautiful in all seasons. You have the lush foliage in the summer. You have those uh, clusters of bright yellow flowers, which are hugely important to pollinators in the spring. You, of course, have the fall foliage. I think big leaf maple is responsible for probably the majority of our fall foliage around here in western Washington. And even in the winter, when all the leaves are off, it's got all of those epiphytes, the moss, the licorice fern, and so forth. Such a beautiful tree. So it's unfortunate that it's gotten such a bad rap. Uh, can you tell us some more about these ecological benefits of maple in terms of not just riparian areas, but how it positively impacts the soil, wildlife habitat as a, a food source and other habitat elements. Tell us more about these benefits. Absolutely, Kevin. It, uh, let me step back in the bigger picture before I, I actually get into that and, and kind of say that all plants have an ecological niche where they're best suited. And think about a normal distribution curve where, where in the center of that curve is an ideal niche. And on each side of that curve is what's called one standard deviation. And you go beyond that, you have two standard deviations. But as you go out farther, no matter what the plan is from that ideal niche that it's in, it becomes under more stress and it doesn't do as well. But uh, big leaf maple has a very perfect match within riparian areas as far as an ecological niche. And it goes beyond that. It, it actually is defined as an Eltonian niche, where it not only survives in that environment, it modifies that environment as it grows. And by doing that, it modifies soil properties. Um, so it it's really has a large effect on what, what's going on. Big leaf maple actually forms what is called an epiphytic community, and it is a uh, a rooting medium and a food web source. And because of that, ferns, mosses, lichens, insects, and soils are all altered by big leaf maple and the growing in there. And as the, as the maple leaf leaves fall in the fall, year after year, they add organic matter to the soil. Those leaves decompose and, and in the top 10 centimeters of the soil, uh, it affects the, the pH of that soil. And we continue to add more organic matter over time, and it provides an ideal environment for a lot of soil organisms. Now, this isn't true with conifer forests, because conifer forests, like Douglas fir, are very acidic. 
And this is a base rich forest. It's much more similar to your garden soil. And because of that, the organisms that are produced in this soil along riparian areas also affect aquatic species. And I'm talking also fish. So these insects, different things that are, are thrive in, in the uh, riparian area because of the big leaf maple, uh, then if, uh, those terrestrial organisms also affect the aquatic organisms. It's an excellent shade tree. Provides, you know, at the time of the year when we need shade to keep temperatures low. In the wintertime, obviously, it doesn't make a difference. But it, uh, you know, so it's it really has a huge beneficial effect uh, on that riparian environment and alters that riparian environment as defined in an Etonian niche. Al, one of the terms that I've kind of associated with maple as this big leaf maple as a species is versatile because it can tolerate a variety of sites from those moist riparian sites to more gravelly upland sites where it can help build soil through all that biomass accumulation from the leaves. And also because it has the best of both worlds in terms of shade tolerance. And normally we associate shade tolerant trees with slower growth, but big leaf maple is a semi-rare example of a tree that is shade tolerant and fast growing. So it can act as a pioneer species and it can also grow up in the understory. Is that fair to say that maple is super versatile for a bunch of sites? Well, it, it really can be, Kevin, and it really helps when you get back to your management objectives. Um, you know, again, maple has, has a niche that does really well in. When it's outside of that niche, um, and, it, and it occurs on a wide variety of sites, it may be more susceptible to decline. And in 2002, the UW and, and the DNR did a study on big leaf maple decline. And it was mostly a weather phenomenon. They found out a weather phenomenon uh, uh, more attributed to weather patterns and weather, uh, what was going on. Uh, the, uh, so we saw a decline in maple when it was growing on a site that wasn't necessarily ideal for it. And so when we look at those trees that might not be in super good health, we're gonna notice that the crowns are thinning the leaves are a little bit more yellow. Um, they're not as thick and robust. And certainly if we're, uh, uh, you know, looking, it, it will compete, grow there and, and be there, but it might not be ideal for it. But on upland sites, some sites, especially uh, maybe we have some sites that are, have root disease in them and uh, we're growing Douglas fir there. Maybe we need to think about another species like maple. And I say that because when I was a forester at Scott Paper, we had a number of laminated root pockets and other root diseases. And we went in with an excavator and we uh, split those stumps and pulled those roots and we burned the piles. And going back 40 years later, can see that we were not very successful. We spent a ton of money. My boss would have should have shot me for spending that kind of money per acre and expecting an economic return. We followed the protocol as far as going out from the affected sites and, you know, 
a certain distance beyond where trees looked affected and so forth and, and pulled all those stumps. But we've been better on up instead of spending all that money, maybe looked at some hardwood species for those sites or those root rot pockets. Um, uh, so that, you know, instead of trying to uh, grow another crop of Douglas fir, I really think on those sites, you're probably, what I've learned, you're probably looking at a rotation or, you know, 60 years anyway, before that disease and that soil is really going to disappear. So, you know, hardwood rotation would be really good. Al, can you give us an example of a site that would not be good for big leaf maple where someone would want to avoid planting big leaf maple? Well, it gets back to what that landowner's objectives are. And Kevin, you know, um, I'm so grateful. I got to work for many years with the uh, gentleman that preceded you <laughs> going back a few years, Dr. Don Hanley and doing classes and, and trying to help landowners put together management plans and understanding managing their property. And Don was such a great mentor, uh, you know, people like that that came along and Don Theo and a number of now passed on, but people influenced my thinking about uh, traditional forestry. But, but as we look at some of the things that we can do with maple, I had a landowner come to me with regard to the maple syrup issue. And, and he says, I want to tap my trees for, for, uh, or, you know, get some sap out of them. And I said, well, you can go ahead and do that. And it was a, a very well-drained soil. I said, you probably aren't going to get any sap there. I said, you'd be better to try in this other area. And uh, so it really gets back to understanding the, how the species match with the site and what your objectives are. It was kind of interesting on that same topic, uh, Gabe New, who is a small forest landowner, here in North Snohomish County, after last year, he was tapping his maple for uh, trying to get some sap out of them. And he told me, he said, you know, we follow all the protocol. We've said all you guys said to do. The weather conditions were perfect. But the side of the tree that was away from the stream, we got no sap production. And the side of the tree that was toward the stream, we did. Well, that's because those vascular tissues are connected. And they go all the way up the tree and down throughout the roots. And that's something we found out early on, the trees next to it where we had very adequate water supply or what we call, uh, in when we're looking at our soils, if you look at a soil survey, it's, it would be denoted in the soil survey as AWC, available water capacity. But those soils that are, that are very, uh, that are not moisture limiting, we have a better chance of getting good sap production, but it's also where we find the healthiest trees. And those are sites where we generally don't have big leaf maple decline. So that, you know, we, we were doing that on a, on a number of sites and that's what led to our strategy of developing uh, riparian areas for maple syrup production. Because when those landowners tried to do it commercially, that's a huge investment, labor and materials. And we wanted to be sure that we were targeting sites that we had the greatest probability of success, even though maple was occurring across the landscape. Well, we, we, when you look at put together a business model and someone wants to invest that kind of money and they hire you 
to do an evaluation, you want to you want to be sure you get it right. You want to look at all of the very small details. And uh, so anyway, I kind of was joking with Patrick earlier. We we're talking about my uh, my uh, Cougars football team and the issues that they're having, and, and it reminded me of a of a uh, famous uh, football coach. Vince Lombardi, and he said, football is a game of inches. Well, forestry is that way too. It's the very small details that may determine success or failure. And so that's real important to hit those optimal sites, depending upon what your management objectives are. And as you remember, Kevin, you've taught a lot of those classes. A lot of the small landowners, when they're working on their management plan, the biggest hurdle they have is defining their management, defining their management objectives, and that's really hard for them because they want everything on every acre with everything there, and that's just not how it works. And you have to understand the niches that different plants fit into, and where they're best suited, and see if and match your biological capability with and potential with what your management goals are, so that you can divide your your, your tree farmer, your ownership into different management units to achieve those goals. So anyway, I hope, I hope I got to your question there, but I didn't ask it again. Yeah. And those are some really great insights, Al. I like that concept of forestry being also a game of inches. And also, I think you've really highlighted the importance of the education programs offered by WSU Extension, the Conservation Districts, the Department of Natural Resources, and so forth to help small forest landowners identify what's feasible on different parts of their property and help them to develop clear objectives and so forth. So it's a, a great plug for the importance of education in all that. Uh, before we move on, I've, I've got kind of an aside question because I get asked this a lot about big leaf maple. All of those epiphytes, and the question yes. always comes up, does it hurt the tree? Does it mean the tree has a disease? No, no, it doesn't hurt the tree at all. Um, in fact, you know, that's why uh, under the maple, we, we call it a soil building species. It actually, all of that, uh, those organisms, that moss, all that it contributes to building the soil. And actually uh, what, what they found is that soil under the maple was actually nitrogen rich. Now that's really, really contrary to most soils here in the Pacific Northwest because they're acidic and they're nitrogen deficient. And, and uh, that's, that's something that we could see right within, our, within that system, how it builds itself. And, and because of that, or the organisms feed off it. And it's not, you know, it's not hurting the maple tree uh, by, by those other uh, plants, ferns, mosses, whatever growing on it. Yeah, I, I read somewhere, it must have been some study they did, they found that some of the old growth maples can actually uh, hold up to one ton in biomass of various epiphytes. And also has a more diverse set of epiphytes it hosts than any other, uh, at least any other maple species um, in the world, which is really, I mean, when we think about the benefits of big leaf maple, I think those are some really good hallmarks. And gosh, people can fact check me, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on that one. <laughs> yeah, you are, Patrick. And you know, and the thing thing is, people don't realize that the big leaf maple 
occurred here in the lower elevations in old growth forests. And that's something we don't see much anymore because we don't have many old growth forests at low elevation. But uh, they also they were a great contributor back contributor back then uh, in those forests. And uh, so it's you know um, something that to, to think about the uh, the effect that they have when they they can grow to be you know three hundred or more years old. And you know if you're worried about them competing with your Douglas fir, because there's some studies that indicate uh, studies that uh, up in British Columbia, they indicate that maple within conifer stands can have a positive influence. Well, there's there are silvicultural treatments that we can work with you on your land and and treat those maples so you don't have to necessarily kill them, but you could re retain them uh, at least a certain number of them and, and still be beneficial to your conifer. Uh, so there is a way to maybe address some of that. It isn't just necessarily all or nothing approach. I, I couldn't have paid you for a better transition. This is perfect because I wanted to switch towards uh, management. Uh, and we know we know really well, you know, how to how to manage dug fur and conifers around here. Um, but managing for maple, managing for hardwoods more broadly is kind of a newer concept um, in this region of the world, at least. Um, so I, yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of those silvicultural treatments and just kind of, we don't have to dig too deep into the details, but thinking about, um, you know, those landowners that have maple and those, maybe those landowners that don't and what their options are. Um, cause I know, you know, we talked about how maple has been treated as a weed, but one of the traits of maple is that it's incredibly vigorous and hard to kill. Well, like weeds are. And so a lot of people do still have some maple dominant stands. Um, so, you know, for those folks that have those stands and maybe for folks that have a conifer plantation, but they want to diversify it, you know, how can people manage maple for the future? Well, there's some really good guidelines, you know, up in Canada and British Columbia, they don't view maple in the same way we do here in the States. And it's kind of, kind of amazing, but they've actually put together a handbook on the management of big leaf maple and they highly value maple in Canada. They just, they just don't, you know, it's, it's funny how we uh, humans develop a certain perception, but uh, some of the guidelines that they they've given. And uh, one of the things I've worked with the small landowners, you know, once a harvest has occurred, especially uh, maple puts up a lot of sprouts. Uh, it's it. So once those sprouts start expressing dominance, and that's at about, oh, three inches of diameter, maybe two inches diameter, someplace in there. Don't want to go too far. You want to go around your maple stump and select uh, good quality uh, uh, sprouts that have a good form, that are straight and healthy looking, and, and then prune the other ones away and leave the, leave the best ones. Now, the reason I say go around the stump, because there's a really good chance that one side of that maple stump is going to rot out and that eventually that side, that sprout is going to break out and fall down once it gets a little larger. So, you know, you kind of want to leave it around, around the maple stump. And so especially this might be really important if you have uh, some root disease problems um, where you need to look at possibly uh, uh, growing some hardwoods or some resistant species uh, maybe something other than Douglas fir uh, to do some treatments 
to to do that. Uh, that that's one thing, and certainly um, some of the uh, area things that we can do, especially closer to the riparian zone, would be of course all by hand. But it, it's really important to uh, promote the health. And uh, one of the things that that they uh, quote in the uh, uh, BC Ministry of Forestry handbook is uh, managing those maple to maintain vigorous growth. And so uh, that, there's some guidelines in there from BC. They've done a great job. And one of the things I've done uh, as we went through this, Gavin uh, and I about, I believe it was about 13 years ago, we started working with small landowners um, that were interested in trying to, to do uh, maple syrup from big leaf maple. And um, out of that, that grew then other people are interested in commercial. And from that uh, program that I put together on the ecological values of big leaf maple, and it's something I just wanted to do because it hadn't really been addressed. And I wanted to get the research uh, that really supported what I was saying because I didn't want it to come from me. And before I could find three, four, maybe five research uh projects that supported the conclusion that it's that I had come to. And so I, I want to certainly make that a, available to you guys at, at some point. I'm still doing some updates on it actually. Uh, but it's it's just kind of like um, uh, being able to manage your maple, but it's, it just kind of fits with hardwood management. Now there has been quite a bit of, of information and technology developed through the the uh, the Northwest, Northwest Hardwoods Commission with regard to alder, but there hasn't been as much in maple. And I think that that might change. You gotta remember any wood product is, is a commodity. And that, that kind of is divided into softwood lumber and hardwood lumber. It's really two separate markets there. They're not, they're not marketed the same, but maple kind of fits into that category. Well, over the last 50 years, we've done a really good job of killing maple as a management strategy. And so maple is becoming limited in our natural environment to some extent, uh, just because of past management practices. Well, at some point, uh, it's gonna be a supply and demand issue. Is, that is, there's gonna be a limited supply of maple wood, and which is gonna drive up the price. And so it might not occur for another 50 years or whatever, but or 30 years or whatever, but it, it's probably likely. And so looking at management strategies for maple on appropriate sites, and by appropriate sites, I'm not talking about a, a specific geographic location. I'm talking about the, the characteristics of that site with regard to soil, water, climate, and so forth. Uh, you know, here in Skagit County, maple doesn't do well above 2,000 feet. You won't you won't find it higher elevations. Uh, so you you do have to look at uh, am I managing this uh, in, on its ideal site? Uh, again, it's an ecological niche of maple. Al, let's talk a little bit about maple syrup. It was about 10, maybe 11 years ago that you 13, Kevin. Up. Was it that long ago? Oh my goodness. 13 years ago. I couldn't believe it. I said, I can't believe we, we, it was that long ago because you know, I'd always been told for 40 years that you can't do it. And, when and I've been told said, the same thing. 
So when you called me up, <laughs> it's and like, said, it's like you know, I love it when fight. somebody, I love it when somebody tells me I can't do something. So I, you know, it might take me a while, but oh, I love a challenge. Yeah, and as soon as I tasted that <laughs> stuff, uh, I I was hooked. So can you tell us a little bit about this kind of uh, phenomenon that's starting to take off with people sugaring big leaf maple? You know, it, it was being done. For years at the hobbyist scale by a few individuals, but it's it's really started to take off in the last 13 years. But walk us through that all the way up to we have an actual commercial producer here in Washington. Yeah, it, it really has, Kevin. And and it really gets back to, you know, uh, for for the small landowner, I mean, you know, let's face it, if you got maple trees on your property, that's what you're gonna tap. And you know, and, and mostly if if they follow the guidelines that you guys have put together for hobbyists, they're probably going to be somewhat successful. I mean, they're going to, you know, at least get enough for, for their family or, or something and meet their needs. Uh, but if you really want to be successful, you, you need to first, you know, evaluate your site and be sure that those soils have an adequate AWC, an adequate supply of, of moisture. Now, the best results that we have got this is in a commercial operation where we have maybe a quarter mile or half a mile of trees in our riparian area, maybe 500 or more trees tapped. And uh, we're, we're hooked them onto a vacuum system and we're, we're evaluate, you know, get, evaluating those trees and we're getting sap from those in a large area. We found that our best production comes on a rain on snow event. And that shouldn't surprise us because soils along a lot of our streams up here are colluvial soils. That is, they're very rocky and they can, the streams can actually, during a dry period, during the winter, when it's very cold, the stream can actually go dry. So the maple, if it's gonna produce sap, it's gonna have to have its roots in some water, available water. And so that's real critical. And, but even before we get to that, in the summer before that, I'll go out and I'll evaluate the health of those maple trees. Because the, 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 the maple tree, which is called a sugar bush, needs to be healthy. If it's in a state of decline, uh, the, you're not going to get good sap production because that requires good photosynthesis. So look up at those leaves. Is it a full crown? Are the leaves green? Is, it, is, it, is there a lot of leaves up there manufacturing sugar? So that's during the growing season. So you got to do that first. Then, you, then is there going to be available water for them during, during the actual maple uh, tapping season when the conditions are right? Um, and so there's, you know, those factors that come into play as far as getting optimal production. So that's, see, that's a big difference between here on the West Coast and the East Coast. Back there, they go into cold weather in the winter, stays frozen over the winter. They collect snow on the, on the, on the surface maybe a couple feet of snow in Vermont, Ontario. And then as it warms, that snow is melting. Well, that saturates the soil. So that has the same effect as rain on snow for us. So we're on and off here. We'll have a, a week or two of good production and then we'll have none. And back and forth, we're there, they have a consistent season for a month or so. And so that's a huge difference uh, uh, of what, you know, um, happens here and versus the East Coast and, and why we have to tailor our operations differently to be successful. 
But for the hobbyist, for the, for the small forest landowner that just wants to do some, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I wanted to caution the mistake that we made early on when we were doing it as a hobby is, you know, after we collect this, this sap and we're doing it, we, uh, we have to clean our lines because we don't want bacteria to grow in those lines once, once we're done. And we tried to clean those lines with bleach. And that was a huge mistake because you found, we found you can't really get all the bleach out of your line. And even a little bit will taint the taste of that syrup. So now we've switched to uh, vinegar and uh, mixed in with our permate. Permate is the water that we have extracted um, uh, during 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 the pro the processing of our of our syrup, I don't want to get into commercial stuff too much. It's, it, I'll get into weeds real quick, into deep things, but it's it's like um, allows us to do some things differently. But what's really cool? So we're talking here the quantity of of our sap, how much can we get, doing so forth. Well, there's something I really need to mention for small forest landers so they don't get discouraged is in maple syruping, there's something called the Jones rule. It's also called the rule of 86. And that means if, you're, if your sap tests at 1% sugar, that it's gonna take 86 gallons to produce one gallon of maple syrup. But here's the interesting thing. If your sap from your trees are 2%, it will only take 43 gallons and that continues on down. And so that's a really important principle because I've gone out very often and on our commercial operations, we'll be running a pretty good stream of, uh, of, uh, of the maple syrup sap into our, our processing facility. We're testing as it comes in and we're, let's say, running one and a half percent is our brick. That is our sugar content. Sugar content is measured in brick for, for maple syrup. And, but I'll go out in the woods and I can test individual trees and I can find trees that are 3%. The most I've ever found is 3.8% uh, sugar content. But if you do the math, that's huge. I go to 3%, my gosh, now I only have to boil down 23 gallons of sap, not 86. And so this is a really important principle because we look, we primarily have focused on quantity, not quality. And I believe there's and other uh, colleagues of mine that are forest geneticists believe that there is a genetic component to uh, this this whole problem, and that's another issue. We we're actually working on that with a company here in Skagit County that's that's looking at a genetic component to produce figured wood, a very high valued wood. Uh, and if this if this research works out. All of a sudden, uh, if you've got an acre or two of land and you're growing figured maple, you're all of a sudden sitting on a gold mine. Uh, so there's there's research going on that's really exciting. I mean, this is like, oh, I'm so cool that people are gonna be able to do this, you know? And so the small forest landowners out there, just because somebody says you can't do it, try it. Just just try it. If, you're, if that's what you wanna do, just try it, experiment with it, have fun with your forest, just, you know, it, you never know where it'll take where it'll take you. So anyway, Kevin, I got it kind of got off track there, but I'm sorry. But but anyway, I had to say that. I, I love that 
that is one of the best actionable messages uh, we've had from a guest is just try it. And I think a lot of forest owners are really, have been really interested in, in trying it. And I do encourage folks listening to, you know, sap season's coming out. This is going to be released December 1st and December through February is really the, the core of the sap season. Um, so I encourage folks listening to, to give it a shot. It's definitely not too late. And we have resources on our website uh, forestry.wsu.edu um, that can help you if you've never even heard of doing this. Um, we've got an introductory webinar that Kevin and I recorded uh, that can give you the basics of that. And uh, Al, I really think that we're going to have to have you on. I'm thinking maybe this time next year and we maybe just talk about maple syrup because we've only just scratched the surface. I, think. I was just talking to a commercial producer yesterday Hey, he's got some family issues or we'd be up uh, on a particular site today. Uh, we've got the right variable conditions occurring. Uh, we don't put all our eggs in one basket in the commercial world. We don't rely on one site. We want a variety of sites across the landscape so that our goal is to have a constant supply of sap coming to our processing facility. So we're, we're diversified in our, in our sites as far as uh, being able to produce uh, sap. We're, we're not trying to just limit ourselves to one thing. Uh, we we want to utilize some different soil types. Uh, we, we can go short distances where we're not getting sap to a fairly short distance and, and we're getting sap. And so it, it really can vary from site to site. Uh, there's so many different conditions and things that uh, can drive the, the, the sap production. So, you know, just if landowners just experiment with just enjoy it and you'll learn your trees you'll learn mm -hmm. the differences you'll learn to see that oh these maple trees aren't all the same my gosh you know and you'll learn a lot about your trees and you'll learn more than you you, you could ever learn reading a book so just go out and enjoy your forest absolutely yeah and if i could if i could give one piece of advice too it's to kind of echo that waiting for the right conditions but but this is the number one mistake that I see landowners make when they're trying to tap for the first time is that they know the sap season is generally December to February. So they go out on December 1st and they place a tap and then they wait for the, the sap to come. But that's really not what you want to do. You want to wait for those conditions you described. Uh, lots of lots of rain, precipitation, a freeze, that rain on snow event that you're talking about. That's when you want to tap because those trees yeah. are going to heal up. And then... In that time you waited between when you tapped and when the sap actually flows, it might have peeled up so much that you won't actually get any sap. And I've had a lot of heartbroken landowners reached out to me uh, that they weren't getting any sap, and I and we found out that was the reason why. Absolutely, yeah, Patrick, that's great. That's absolutely true. And and yeah. what happens in those tap holes? You it doesn't really damage the tree, but what will happen? The vascular tissue compartmentalizes. And you, you, if you try to re-drill in the same location, then you won't get any sap. Is that something that we can address in the workshops to be sure that people understand the proper tapping protocol? And I actually use a little uh, lumber crayon and I mark my holes so that uh, sometimes they're not always easy to see um, so that I, I'm not re-tapping on the same uh, vascular tissue within that, that xylem. 
Yep, yep. And there's lots of stuff to learn about that. And and this is a great segue out. Um, we're at time here and should should start closing. But, uh, you know, Kevin and I are both going to be offering some opportunities to learn about uh, Big Leaf Maple Tapping this winter. Um, won't have the details on that just yet. So as always, you know, point you towards uh, our website, forestry.wsu.edu to look for that. I'm hoping to do some some live demonstrations uh, down here in Olympia at the, at the field station that Kevin mentioned earlier. And I also want to plug a, a program that Kevin and I started last year called the Sapsucker Program, which is a citizen science effort uh, where hobbyist tappers, people trying it for the first time, can submit uh, data on the sap that they collect. And it helps us learn this kind of information about, you know, what what are the characteristics of trees, characteristics of site that produce more and higher quality sap? So if you want to participate in that, that information is also on our website as well. But Al, I just want to thank you for joining us. And like I said, it would be really great to have you on and just get into the weeds on this maple syrup stuff um, some other time. But well, uh, thank thanks. you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me, Patrick. And, you know, people don't get it discouraged if it doesn't work for you the first time. Uh, just keep experimenting and you'll you'll find out little things, nuances like Dave New found on History History Farm is that, oh, I just need to tap the other side of the tree. And you know, things that work because that's where the where the uh, roots reach reach the water. And uh, so nice to visit with you guys and look forward to it next time. That's right. Game of inches, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all listeners uh, for tuning in for another great episode. I hope you all have great holidays and uh, we will see you again after the new year. 